Welcome to the Mayo Clinic Orthopedic Surgery Podcast, a curated series of interviews and discussions highlighting the three shields of orthopedic surgery at Mayo Clinic, clinical practice, research, and education. Welcome to the Mayo Clinic Orthopedic Surgery Podcast. I'm really excited about the episode today. We've got one of my friends and partners in the trauma division, Brandon Ewan, and we're going to talk a little bit about a very common fracture that we see in each of our practices, which is femoral neck fractures, particularly focusing on those in the elderly. Uh, Brandon did his training uh, with me here at the Mayo Clinic, did his residency here, did fellowship training at Harborview in Seattle, and then came back and joined us on faculty and is now the division chief of orthopedic trauma surgery. I'm excited to have you, Brandon. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, perfect. Thanks for having me, John. So I'd like to go deep today on uh, elderly femoral neck fractures. And I think it's really important for all of our listeners. Obviously, in the aging population, we've got a high incidence of both femoral neck fractures, but also uh, uh, older adults trying to stay active. Can you tell me about sort of the typical presentation of elderly femoral neck fractures to, to your practice? Yeah, that's a great question because I think that's probably the first important distinction to make about elderly femoral neck fractures is that we're going to treat them entirely different or think about them entirely different than, than young patients with femoral neck fractures. This is one of the few times, you know, which makes our job even more interesting is where we're thinking about the treatment of a particular injury, not just based off of the radiographs of what you see of the morphology of the fracture, but off of the patient's history and the patient's demographics and the patient's goals. And that has a major effect on what your goals of treatment are going to be in terms of how you even frame the discussion for what you might do. So for most patients that are what we typically use the word area, uh, elderly or geriatric femoral neck fractures, we're thinking about the type of patient where they had the injury typically through a low energy mechanism. And what I mean by that is that they, they you know, it's a slip and fall or it's a fall at home or it's a fall while walking outside, not a car crash or a fall from height or something like that. And the injury occurs in part because of that low energy mechanism and likely it also in part because the patient has some degree of osteopenia so that their bone would break from a lower energy mechanism like that. Sure, and a lot of these patients have uh, obviously comorbidities um, at, at that time point. What's your workup look like in the emergency department? Um, what kind of things do you wanna know about these patients when they come in uh, or if for the residents out there as a, as a faculty, what are gonna be your critical de decision makers for moving forward? Yeah, so obviously some of it is gonna be things you're gonna glean from the chart. Some of it's you're gonna glean from talking to the patient and then some of it maybe even from talking to family members. But part of it is, you know, what is the patient's you know, chronologic age? And then more importantly, what is the patient's physiologic age? So not every 65 year old is 65 in terms of how they function day to day. Some of them function more like they're 85 and some of them function much more like they're 45. So you want to get an idea of not just what is the patient's age and what are their medical comorbidities, but also what do they like to do day to day? What is their function like day to day? Where do they live? Who do they live with? How much help do they need? in terms of performing their normal activities that they do day to day and what type of things they enjoy. Do they need a gate aid to walk around or do they do it with, they do all their activities without the use of a cane or a walker. And sometimes of course, in these patients, because they do have medical comorbidities, we have to obtain some of that information from a surrogate, from their family member or from a caregiver. 
or something else because the patient isn't able to provide that information. And that doesn't mean the information is not at, still important, still important to provide, but you just got to dig a little deeper to find all the, the answers to all those questions. Yeah, and as, um, as your partner, we get to be in trauma rounds together. And obviously, I think some of the major things that we key on, like you mentioned, is independence. And obviously, um, uh, then a correlate of that is um, if they use a gate aid and if they use a gate aid in the house or in the community, uh, anticoagulation status. And then obviously, we, we talk a little bit about clearance. And our process is to use our medical, part, medical internal medicine partners to go through clearance. Can you talk a little bit about, as opposed to, let's say, the very young femoral neck fracture where we've got urgency for fixation. Can you talk about some of the data around clearance and timing for surgery in the elderly hip fractures? Does it matter? Do we have, a, do we have an urgency to do it? I know there were even studies in which they did it within hours of presentation. Can you talk about best available literature in 2022 with that? Yeah, so the, the rationale there is that for thinking about an elderly person with a femoral neck fracture, is that we want to get them back to a functional base where they can be up and mobile as soon as possible. Patients that are, have multiple uh, medical comorbidities that end up sitting in bed with a painful injury like a femoral neck fracture for a prolonged period of time start to develop other medical problems and delirium and other things that go up, which can contribute even to their early post-operative mortality within the first even 30 days. And so for those patients, we're not thinking about doing the surgery sooner because we want to save the femoral head like in a young patient where we're trying to risk, reduce the risk of avascular necrosis. We're thinking about doing the surgery earlier because we want to get the, them back to being able to be out of bed and mobile. So the best available literature we had on that, you know, if we rewind the clock five years or so, people were thinking about within 48 hours from the time of presentation to the time of getting to the operating room was the amount of time you had to medically optimize that patient to get them to the OR. There was a more recent study published in the last three years or so, a larger study um, where they, they cone that number down to even as close as 24 hours or so. And then there's been a randomized controlled trial that was completed recently trying to get that number down to eat, treating it like an emergency of getting the patients to the operating room within six hours. Now, that the results from that study, the hip attack study, did not actually show that there was a, a major mortality benefit to getting patients to the operating room within six hours for a uh, femoral neck fracture. However, they had some subgroups that uh, showed that there might be some particular patients which may benefit from that rapid sequence to the operating room. And they're following that up with additional studies uh, that we may be involved with here at, at Mayo as well to try to ferret out exactly which patients it is that may benefit from that, from treating it like a true emergency. But the short answer basically is, is that there's a lot of, these patients have a lot of opportunity sometimes for medical improvement, but you want to delineate what is that, what is it that needs to be made better and what is it that's necessary to get the patient to the operating room. These patients are like, uh, I used to, I like to say this because I heard it from a mentor of mine, but these patients are like sharks. If they don't move, they're going to die. And so you need to get them up and moving. And that means you need to get into the operating room as soon as is reasonably possible. So you got to work closely with the people that are doing your uh, medical optimization at your hospital to, so that they understand the goals of what they're trying to accomplish there. It's not to get the patient completely tuned up from a medical standpoint. It's to get them to a point where there's nothing else further that needs to be done to get them safely through a surgery so that we can then move on and get them up and out of bed. Yeah, I think uh, certainly that relationship with internal medicine is critical. And we've got a close relationship here with our internal medicine colleagues. So that, so that makes a lot of sense. So let's move from the um, more medical management to the, some of the hip fracture types. 
So let's talk about um, the, let's say, relatively displaced or minimally displaced femoral neck fracture. What are you looking at radiographically in order to make decisions about it? Or in general with femoral neck fractures, what are you looking at in the elderly femoral neck fracture to make decisions about surgical treatment options? Yeah, so that's a good question. The main, the, I mean, the main radiographic question, which is important, once we've defined that this is a patient that we're going to treat as a geriatric or elderly femoral neck fracture, the main radiographic question to ask is, is the fracture displaced or not? Um, and we define, you know, some degree of relative stability of the fracture based on displacement, categorizing things really into two different categories, ones that are relatively stable, those would include fractures that are completely non-displaced, uh, and those that are valgus impacted, and fractures that are displaced, even if they're just impacted into varus, or if they're just a little bit of, uh, of other translation of the fracture, those ones would be considered to be unstable. So those would be the, the initial part of the radiographic uh, analysis that, the, that you should do after you see the patient is figuring out, is that fracture relatively stable, meaning it's non-displaced or valgus impacted, or is it unstable? Yeah, and we really focus on obviously the AP um, uh, pelvis and AP hip and then the cross table lateral. Can you talk about um, parameters for acceptable amounts of displacement to be considered in the uh, stable or non-displaced category. We could obviously non-displaced would be an MRI or CT based diagnosis, but on an x-ray, uh, how yeah. much would be acceptable in varus and then how much in valgus and, and uh, can you talk a little bit about the cross table lateral, what you look for there? Yeah. So I would say that that's the part that tricks people up the most is that sometimes if you look at the AP radiograph, you can see that the fracture is slightly valgus impacted and you can pick that up as that small wrinkle on the superior cortex of the femoral neck. And having the fracture that you mentioned is either non-displaced or slight valgus impacted is still acceptable for in situ fixation, what we would consider to be that category of stable, relatively stable femoral neck fractures. Any amount of varus or any amount of translation on that single AP view, though, is likely to mean that that's unstable. So once you've figured out that it's either non-displaced or valgus impacted, the next thing to do would be to look at the lateral radiograph. These fractures almost always universally go into apex anterior angulation. The leg externally rotates through the foot, then the femoral neck that's still attached to the femur starts to point up into the air, whereas the head is fixed in the acetabulum. So you end up with apex anterior angulation and you need to figure out exactly how much of that apex anterior angulation there is. There's different ways to look at it and categorize it, which can be get complex, but basically you're trying to figure out how much uh, angulation in the neck there is on the lateral. And we use typically use the uh, agreed upon angle of if it's more than 20 degrees or so of apex anterior angulation, then that's a uh, predictor that in situ fixation is likely to fail. And we consider that a relatively unstable fracture. Yeah, that, that sure makes sense. And obviously you can sometimes see a fracture that looks really benign on the AP and then that lateral um, looks really displaced. Can you talk something you brought up with, uh, with us in conference? Can, it, can you have too much valgus? Is that possible? Is there, is there a problem with excessive valgus of femoral neck fractures? Yeah, that that's, can come up. That's probably been less recognized as a potential source of instability. Uh, when compared to looking at the lateral radiograph to see how much apex anterior angulation there is. But there is probably two consequences from too much valgus. One is that the more, you know, if you get excessive valgus, you start to lose some of the offset of the femoral neck and proximal femur, which can affect the function of the hip if you choose to treat that with in situ fixation. The second thing is that excessive amount of valgus probably, valgus probably can result in more fracture instability. 
And cert certainly when it's combined with apex anterior angulation on the lateral, that is a very, very much a harbinger of potential failure with in situ fixation. So I would apply the same thing there. If you can measure the amount of excessive valgus either by comparing it to the contralateral AP of the uninjured hip, and it's more than 20 degrees or so, then I do get a little bit worried that that might be excessive valgus and that keeping doing in situ fixation may fail. Gotcha. That makes sense. So let's uh, take a clinical scenario in your practice. So let's say someone comes in, they've got a femoral uh, ground level fall, a uh, 70 year old community ambulator, and they have uh, 10 degrees of valgus. They've got minimal displacement on the lateral x-ray. What are your treatment options and what's your treatment of choice in 2022? Yeah, so that's a good example of you're giving an elderly patient. First of all, we've signed it's an elderly patient that's still relatively active, but not the type of patient where we're really super concerned about maintaining their femoral head. They're fitting in this category of an elderly femoral neck fracture and um, a fracture that we're going to say is maybe radiographically relatively stable. So minimal amount of valgus on the AP and then no uh, or minimal displacement and apex anterior on the lateral. So I would typically go for in situ fixation for this patient, which would mean some sort of internal fixation um, to stabilize the fracture in the position that it is. Options would be with cannulated screws, typically done in an inverted triangle position uh, to get the screws as uh, peripheral as possible into the femoral neck and minimize the amount of perforations of those screws in the subtrochanteric area of the femur by placing just one down low. Another option would be to use some sort of screw and side plate device, either like a sliding hip screw or other newer devices that are available that, do, that can allow you to uh, stabilize the femoral neck in situ by using a fixed angle device um, to do so. Now, you should be aware, of course, though, there is some increasing data to support that if you look just at outcomes like mortality or patient-reported uh, patient outcomes on like um, for quality of life and not at specific hip-related outcomes, then um, there may not be a difference between doing a hemiarthroplasty or other kind of hip arthroplasty for that patient with the relatively stable fracture versus doing in situ fixation. That's a relatively new concept for people to think about because I think the, in, it should be noted that in general, you should always think about doing in situ fixation and maintaining that patient's femoral head. But um, there is data out there to say that if you just look at things like mortality and quality of life, it may not actually be different. And the reoperation rate may be slightly lower if you just jump to doing a hemiarthroplasty for that patient even. Yeah, I think that's interesting. And it'll be an interesting trend to follow as we go forward is, is um, which of these patients have, have radiographic criteria or uh, physiologic criteria that make you uh, push earlier to an arthroplasty. Can you, can you also tell us a little bit about the best available data? I know there was a large randomized control trial regarding cannulated screws and sliding hip screws and what that showed um, for the residents out there for their tests. Yes. Yeah, that's probably a frequently um, referenced study, the FAITH trial, which was about fixation options for femoral neck fractures in elderly patients. That was a trial, multi-center international randomized controlled trial of patients over the age of 50 comparing a screw and side plate type device or a fixed angle device versus cannulated or, or compression screws only for femoral neck fixation. The main important thing probably to remember from that is that their main outcome from that study was reoperation. And they showed that the rate of reoperation was not different between those two fixation options. However, the types of reoperations were different. The patients that got reoperated on in the compression screw group were typically more hardware removal or exchange of hardware likely a screw that backed out and became prominent on the IT band or something like that. And the patients that we re reoperated on in the sliding hip screw group 
tended to be conversions to arthroplasty. And there were significantly more patients in that group that developed avascular necrosis that necessitated an arthroplasty. I think all, we would all look at that and say, well, yeah, those two types of reoperations are not of equal morbidity. Um, so even though the overall rate of reoperation was the same, there was uh, maybe a slight favor towards the compression screws, our cannulated screws, in terms of the type of reoperation that was necessary. Um, but the other subgroup analysis of that is that the fracture types that tended to be more unstable, vertical fracture patterns, or patients that may, might have more difficulty with healing, like patients that smoked, tend to do better with the fixed angle device, the sliding hip screw. That's interesting, but I think uh, so. I think to to summarize, no compelling data to tell us we should do one or the other, but maybe slightly different types of complications between the two, which is which is interesting. Right. And you got to use that information, obviously, to figure out for that particular patient you're treating what is it you're actually what is your goal mm -hmm. and what are you trying to avoid. And for the, I would say in my practice for most of these patients, they're geriatric patients. We're trying to avoid a reoperation, a significant reoperation. Uh, for them that would get them back in the hospital and, and back where they couldn't bear weight and couldn't be active. And so for the vast majority of those, and they're not usually displaced fractures, like we talked about, these are usually relatively radiographically stable fractures. So the vast majority of those, then we're going with something that's more akin to compression screws typically for in situ fixation and less like the, the traditional sliding hip screw device. Yeah, that's great. So, um, so I think we've, um, answered the questions regarding the non-displaced or minimally displaced fractures. Now let's transition a little bit to the varus fractures or excessive uh, valgus or uh, the one that we oftentimes see, which is apex anterior fractures. Can you talk us through thought process now for arthroplasty of the hip? Um, maybe focus on uh, briefly hemi versus total hip arthroplasty. Yeah, absolutely. So I think the important thing there to remember, uh, because sometimes this is forgotten in the logistics of figuring this out, which is that those patients that have displaced femoral neck fractures, geriatric elderly patients with displaced femoral neck fractures, as you described, the reason we're doing recommending arthroplasty for those patients is not because we cannot fix the fracture. You can fix it. You can reduce it and fix it. It's because the risk uh, of reoperation or the risk profile of reducing it and fixing it is usually unacceptably high. And that's usually risk of non-union and risk of avascular necrosis, both of those complications approaching at least 20% or so. Um, or so the, and for those patients where we remember our goal is to prevent rehospitalization and reoperation, that's considered to be unacceptably high. And so we typically then jump to saying, we're gonna do an arthroplasty of some sort. So the arthroplasty then to figure out is what type of arthroplasty, total hip arthroplasty or hemiarthroplasty. There's been some thought in the past that potentially patients might function better with a total hip arthroplasty compared to a hemiarthroplasty. And I'd say that historically, surgeons have primarily made the decision between those two options, basing it off of that, meaning is this patient gonna be slightly of slightly higher function and to realize the benefit of a total hip arthroplasty, for instance, a patient that is able to do gardening or golfing or something like that every day versus the patient that is not gonna realize that functional benefit and therefore we just do a hemiarthroplasty. Now, like one of the other, you know, very large randomized controlled trials done in orthopedic surgery was done on this topic, the health trial, which was published in Lancet just recently, looking at comparing a, as an international randomized controlled trial, hemiarthroplasty versus total hip arthroplasty for those patients. 
And the thing to realize about that trial is they only had two-year follow-up data. So you're just looking at how those patients do in the first two years. So there's some limitation in terms of potential risk of long-term reoperation or long-term function there. But in the first two years, no major significant clinical difference in terms of function between hemiarthroplasty and total hip arthroplasty and the rates of reoperation were relatively similar with more patients getting a reoperation for instability or dislocation in the total hip arthroplasty group. Yeah, it's really interesting. Obviously, I think the uh, certainly for those of us that um, uh, every every resident or faculty that that has done total hip, they see how well that works in the arthritic patients. And I think it's interesting that um, as one of my partners says, it doesn't seem like the total hips are running circles around the hemiarthroplasty. So it's a small difference in some series, but but not massive. And I think it's uh, mitigated to some degree by that instability rate. Can you talk a little bit about um, uh, we're, we're getting a little bit short on time, but I want you, I'm going to go quick hitters on, um, what you do and, um, and why in terms of some, um, implant choices and surgical technique. Are you, are you on board with that? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, the, the main, then the other decision points, if we say we're going to do a hip arthroplasty for displaced femoral neck fracture, I'd say the first decision point is maybe approach there. Are you going to do a posterior approach to the hip or some sort of anterior-based approach to the hip? The Remember, the goals for this particular type of surgery are not the same as goals for patients that are having hip arthroplasty done for arthritis. We're trying to prevent reoperation. We're trying to prevent complications that result in repeat hospitalization. So I think it's best to choose an approach which is going to minimize the risk of instability. So hence, in my practice, I always do an anterior lateral approach for a hemiarthroplasty or a total hip arthroplasty that's done for fracture, trying to minimize that risk of, of instability. Secondly, then you could think about type of femoral fixation for the arthroplasty, either cemented or uncemented. If you go cemented, then the um, risk of both intraoperative and postoperative complication was specifically related to fracture of the femur is going to be lower with a cemented stem than it is with an uncemented stem. And remember this, again, this type of patient is a patient that just broke their femoral neck. These patients break their bones for a living. You want to prevent them from breaking a bone again. And so it makes perfect sense that this, these types of patients should get, un, or sorry, should get cemented fixation of their femoral component when an arthroplasty is performed for a femoral neck fracture. Um, it's also important to realize it's not just intraoperative fracture, but it's postoperative fracture rate that is higher when you do an uncemented stem. Um, there is some data to say maybe the rate of intraoperative complication, cardiac complications and death is gonna be a little higher if you use cemented implants compared to uncemented implants related to pressurizing the femur for cement, prep for cement uh, preparation and that sort of thing. However, that risk of mortality in terms of big numbers, if you look at um, registry data, tends to wash out by about 30 days after surgery. So although there may be more patients that die intraoperatively, if you think you think of it this way, more patients that die intraoperatively from a cemented stem, that increased rate of, of mortality that's realized with the cemented stem intraoperatively tends to wash out very soon after surgery within the first month or so. So you're not getting a benefit for that long for those patients by choosing an uncemented stem if you think you're doing it for decreasing their intraoperative mortality rate. Um, the other thing is about if you're going to do, if you're choosing hemiarthroplasty or you're choosing a, a unipolar versus a bipolar type of implant, I think radiographic studies have shown that most bipolar implants tend to become unipolar implants within um, just a few months, even after surgery. So 
not a whole lot of good data to support that you should be using a bipolar in terms of reducing the risk of acid tabular wear um, in the long run. Great, that's super helpful information. And uh, each of those, um, in, in, in particular, the first two recommendations, cemented components and a direct lateral or anterolateral approach are supported by Academy clinic, clinical practice guidelines based on level of evidence. So certainly fairly compelling levels of evidence to help us to make decisions about that. Um, Brandon, really helpful conversation today to kind of walk us through the nuance of hip, um, hip fractures in the elderly, particularly femoral neck fractures. I think uh, useful advice and for every resident that's out there and every uh, orthopedic surgeon across the country, this is something we'll see every day. Any last minute thoughts or comments or uh, ideas about the future in regard to uh, this problem? I think it's, it's really good and helpful because it's such a common problem that I think everyone should be uh, invested in because it's going to be a large part of your practice almost no matter what you do in terms of general orthopedics. Um, future things, you know, I think there's going to be a lot of focus potentially on timing of surgery and making sure that multidisciplinary teams are involved in taking care of these patients because um, having everyone on the same page in terms of what's the right thing to do for that patient in the moment, meaning focused on getting into the operating room to get their surgery so they can get up and walk is gonna be critical. So I think there's gonna be a lot of focus on that uh, in terms of optimizing team structure for taking care of these patients and, and, and uh, minimizing the amount of time that's spent before the patient goes to the operating room. Perfect, thanks so much for joining us today as always, Brandon. Yeah, thanks, John, I appreciate it. Yeah.